Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I love the topic we're talking about today, which is mastery under pressure. And joining me on Leave Your Mark is my friend, Tina Greenbaum, who is a speaker, empathetic leadership coach, consultant, and trainer. She's the founder and CEO of Mastery Under Pressure, a management coaching program for high-performing executives who need to refine and master their interpersonal and interdepartmental skills. Her book is called Mastery Under Pressure. All that stands between you and your goals is you. Tina, you are someone who has trained Olympians. You have trained so many different types of people under sort of your guiding principle. And I'd love to start off with, one, how did you get into this type of work? Because it's very specific. You are training high-performing individuals but really from an almost like an athletic point of view, if I'm correct. Exactly. <laughs> so it's been kind of a trail. I started out many years ago as a psychotherapist. I'm a clinical social worker by training. And I learned very early on that my clients, they could talk, 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 but they weren't changing. And so, wow, if I'm going to be successful, I've got to figure something else out. My first job was working with women with eating disorders. I'd say to them, I hear you, but I don't feel you. And somehow or other, if I don't feel you, you're not going to change. And so I was very stuck. Nobody had ever treated eating disorders before. I did this, you know, started this 40 years ago. I was in one of the first units in the entire country. Wow. And they handed us a, a manual that said alcoholism, and they crossed it out and put eating disorders. Oh. And they said, go. Wow. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> it was scary because these women were very, very sick. So it was really imperative of me to start really looking at what's going to work, what's going to change these women because they were so tightly, tightly controlled. Eating disorders are all about control. You know, being out of control, feeling like I need to have control. I can't control you as my parent. I can't control anybody. I control my food. I control my body. So it was very, very, very challenging. You know, I was just kind of like, where do I go from here? <laughs> and my first clue, honestly, was that yoga class where I get myself into that deep state of relaxation called Shavasana. <sighs> but everything was just kind of quiet down, all the stress, all the anxiety. And I said, wow, if I could only get these young women to do this, 
to relax at this level, I could help them with their eating disorder. Because what I did learn is all addictions are anxiety-based. And they're always about feelings that we don't want to feel. And I became very intrigued with the sports psychology side of things. I had kids that were competitive athletes. One of my kids tried out for the junior national soccer team. They were really, really good. And we were always working on that comparison. How do you compare to the next person who is also really great? What's going to separate you from that next person? You know, I used to say, I don't know a lot about soccer, but I know a lot about psychology. And it was the way that you handled your mind. I used to say to one of my kids, you know, as a striker, when you're standing in front of that goal, you should get that penalty kick because the percentages are in your favor. But if your mind is somewhere else, most likely you won't get it because of the pressure. So I started taking courses in sports psychology and and then the neuroscience came along and I always like a challenge. I get to this level. Okay. Then I get a little bored and then I want to learn more. And then I get to that level and then I get a little bored. (laughs) And so (laughs) for me to keep growing, I like to be challenged. And the separation really became, it wasn't difficult people with difficult mental issues like schizophrenia and psychosis and, and bipolar disorder and the things that are extremely challenging. And I learned so much of that from these women with the eating disorders, but I was much more attracted to people who were really well and really wanted to make a big impact in the world. And I could see the same issues that I could help them with. So, you know, my own personal profession has really been about helping those people that can impact others. That idea of of starting with the top and everything that they do kind of filters down to an entire organization. So when you start working with someone, What is the first thing you do? The first question I ask is, what can you tell me about yourself that would be very helpful for me to know as to why you're here? And what are some of the answers that someone might give you? Example would be, I'm a CTO of a company. I'm really high up in my company. The only person above me is my CEO. I love him to death. He's great. But when he gives me feedback, I just want to crumble inside. Mm. He doesn't know it because he would never know that I don't kind of show that. But what do I do with this? Right. That's a great example. So what does he do with that? Well, we start to track back. So I always like to start in the present. Okay, Therapy gets a really bad name because a lot of people tell me about this and tell me about this story and that story. I don't need the story. I'm actually most interested in the sensation of the story. So Mm. I'll give you an example. So he starts to tell me his parents are Greek immigrants. They had very, very high expectations of education was everything. Perfection was everything. A's were everything. So, all right, now I already know, okay, what he's dealing with. That everywhere he takes himself, and he's a very high achieving, has gone through many, many evolutions of his career and now he's up to the CTO. I already know that he's smart. I already know that he's a high achiever and I already know that he's a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. So that's where I start to, we start to go into this perfectionism. And then what does it feel like when that gets challenged? 
So here's your CEO, he's talking to you, and you're beginning to feel like you're starting to crumble. Right? So now we're aware of the body memory and the body sensation that goes along with that pattern. That makes sense. Yes. Okay, so now we know that when you feel that caving feeling, it's not your boss that's really in front of you. <laughs> it's really one of your parents. Oh, God. And that to him was like the greatest insight. He had never thought of it that way. Again, I didn't need years and years to go back into all the story and all the you know trauma and this. No, we only need the pieces that aren't working. And then we get a shortcut. Mm -hmm. So when we think about pressure and stress, and most people don't handle pressure and stress well or don't want to handle it well. When we think about sort of the foundation of how you coach, which is from this athlete mindset, mm -hmm. how does an athlete's mindset help with mastering something under pressure? Okay. So one of my favorite examples, and if you don't mind, Elisa will use you as an example. Oh boy. Okay. Okay. It's just, we'll have fun with it. Okay, great. So if you think about, you've done so many wonderful things and your career you. is really beautiful and you're impacting people. And at the same time, there must be something that you've had to work hard on that hasn't really come just like that. Yep. So you can share it if you want. You don't have to. Oh, share yeah, I can it. share it. Okay, go ahead. Public speaking, because I had a stutter growing up. Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. And I do remember mm -hmm. reading that in your book. Okay, this is a great story. So in order for you personally, and again, it may be a different story for somebody else. Let's imagine that we have two rectangles. Okay, one here and one here that represent the conscious mind. Mm -hmm. Okay, the conscious mind is finite. It only holds so much information. Okay? Mm -hmm. And once we fill it, which is what happens with pressure, we get overwhelmed and I got to do this and I got to, okay. The material that we really need to remember gets lost. So for you to become a public speaker, what are the three or four things that you had to train yourself and remember so that you could perform at this beautiful level? Let's just see if we can name them. Okay. So one of them was a breathing technique called airflow that my therapist taught me when I was very, very young. Okay. Because I didn't stutter like repeating sounds. I more just held my breath and like the words wouldn't come out, especially mm -hmm. if the word began with a vowel. So like okay. my name, if someone asked me my name, that was very challenging. So I would okay. always answer, my name is Elisa. So the breathing technique. And then I really have always found using visualization of an outcome to help me like see myself doing the thing I want to be doing successfully, I can see it. And then I sort of do it. Okay. So if we fill this box of your conscious mind with the breathing that you know, mm -hmm. and the visualization that you use, could we say that you've had a pretty good performance? Yes. I mean, over the course of time, sure. Okay. Now let's take the same box, okay? And I'm thinking about my breathing 
and it doesn't come out right. And I said, oh, God, I can't believe I did that. Okay. And then you try it again and then you get more annoyed with yourself. And so we only have a hundred percent to work with, right? So now we've only got maybe 25% to really have a good performance because 75% of it is dealt with the negative self-talk. Okay. And so you can apply this to any situation that you are working on. Yeah, I play tennis. Okay. So mastery under pressure actually was tennis to the max before it was mastery under pressure because my husband teaches tennis and I was out with him one day and he was talking to one of his students who was great. It was a beautiful tennis player, but when he would get under competition, he'd fall apart. So my husband said to him, he says, you got to go out there. You got to be aggressive. You got to be confident. I said, you know, you're telling him all the right things. He just doesn't have a clue how to do it, Mm -hmm. but I know how to teach him how to do it. And so we started this program and I teach the same thing. Focus relaxation, how to deal with negative self-talk. We can come back to that because it's really important. Mm-hmm. How to visualize, which you already described, and dealing with fear. Those are the five topics that we talk about. To be able to manage, I call it this instrument, so that I can perform at my highest level. I can catch myself okay, when something's not going right. When, you know, again, I'll go back to tennis because it's a sport and a lot of people can identify with it. And it's just one player against another player. You don't have any other support. There's no team members. You're out there. You're all by yourself. And so is the expectation realistic? Is it in your capability to do this? If you ask me to be a math genius, it's not going to happen. You ask me to be a good public speaker, I can do that. I can work on those skills and I can learn them. So again, here I am, I'm a tennis player and I, you know, hit the ball into the net and then I hit it into the net again and I hit it into the net. Okay. So now my emotions, I'm filling up that box. Yes. Filling it up with negative thoughts. So wait, when you're doing that, because we all can picture this scene of hitting into the net, how do you snap out of, or how do you empty the box of the negative thoughts? There's a couple of things. One is it's done. Next. Okay. Now I have to bring myself back in the present. How quickly can I do that? And that's one of the skills. How quickly can I let it go and bring myself right here? That's done. Okay. Next thing. Is there something quickly that I can figure out that I need to adjust? Why did it go into the net? Okay. Well, my racket was facing down. So now here I have another opportunity. Let me make a tweak. Let me make an adjustment. And then I go. Now, again, they say in sport, and it's the same thing with any performance thing, practice when you're in practice like you're performing so that when you're performing, it's just like practice. Mm -hmm. So much of this is practice and repetition and practice and repetition. So it gets into the system, gets into your nervous system. Because you don't have a lot of time to think. You have that split second to make that adjustment. So when I work with tennis players, it's, okay, so what are the task-related cues that are going to get me to where I want to go, to that great performance? Whatever it is, what are the things that will create a great performance? So in tennis, we only have those split second. Where is my opponent? You know, what's my strategy? 
that's it. <laughs> and not a whole lot else. And so it's practicing, bringing it back to um, in the present, that point is gone. If I start thinking about the outcome, I'm in trouble. Okay. So you're saying you should not think about the outcome. You cannot think about the outcome when you're carrying out a task that requires all of your attention in the present. Okay. So let's go back again to public speaking. You know, the TEDx talk that I gave, I had to have that thing nailed. I did it over and 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 over again. I used all kinds of visualizations as I was memorizing it. I had all kinds of pictures in my head because there's no time to think. Right. You're on. And so you just got to be in the moment, be in the moment, be in the moment, and trust that all the work that you've put in will show up. There's a whole thing around getting into the state of flow, and there's the whole science behind it now. This is skill. I like to say that good mental health is not a natural sport. It's a learned sport. It's a learned sport. And so we figure out where the adjustments need to happen. So I call it my three eyes, right? So the first part of any transformational work is the insight. Oh, there it is. You know, I catch it. Now I've got insight. I know what it's related to. Yes, this is a story that I learned when I was little. And that's not my mother that's standing there. That's not my teacher. That's somebody else who just reminds not only me, but my nervous system of that experience. Mm -hmm. I'm not in that experience. Okay, so the first level is awareness. I like to say that the definition for mindfulness is being aware in the present moment without judgment. Okay. Right? So insight. Now we're learning again from somebody like me or some other professional or some other book or some other way where we're bringing in new information, new skills. A lot of the things that you and I are talking about you wouldn't necessarily know unless you studied it. Mm -hmm. The things that you know that I certainly would never know. I'm not a branding expert. So we have to be coachable, teachable, open to feedback, willing to hear what somebody else's point of view is. And we start to implement new skills. So we're into the implementation stage. And in the beginning, it feels like you're putting on shoes on the wrong feet. And it's very, very uncomfortable because it's not your habit. We're breaking habits. So really, my whole career has been about how do I help somebody at that fundamental level? Because the body gets triggered before the mind. I can change my thoughts and then this is still running. I'm still getting triggered, which means that we haven't really solved the problem yet. Let's just kind of get down to the source. What's really, really, you know, kind of triggering that. And once we get that, then your own mind and your own intelligence and your own intuition begins to put the pieces together. It's actually a pretty fascinating, amazing process. When you look at all of your clients at like a macro level, is there like a pattern to the mistakes that you see over and over again, people making people who have big jobs and obviously have a lot to deal with? One is trying to do everything. I mean, you, you and I just talked about just before we got on, you know, when you were launching your book, you, you really worked hard at being very mindful of the things that required your attention. Mm -hmm. It becomes overwhelming if you're attempting to do everything. 
That's number one. The other thing is that my experience with leaders, because they're really smart for the most part, I was just talking yesterday to um, my tax advisor who has a phenomenal practice and is amazing, amazing at what he does. And he said, I'm a terrible boss. Okay. Just a terrible boss. I need other people to manage other people because I just get too frustrated. Let's go. Let's do it. Why it's not done. So that's another piece. Another piece is a lot of times their home lives are not working so well. Mm. They're really, really, really busy. They miss kids' birthdays. They miss anniversaries. They miss a lot. Kids are mad at their parents. Their spouses are mad at them. Um, alcoholism. Mm. You know, I could go on because the wealth of training matches the wealth of problems. <laughs> <laughs> One of the talks you do, Thriving in a Highly Competitive World, Unlock Your Inner Athlete. Yes. Should we be comparing ourselves to people or should we have our own goalposts that we are striving for and sort of put on blinders? It's a great question. So one of the things that I've learned in my career, and I'm sure that you have, is who are the people that are really successful doing what you're doing? What are they doing? What are they doing that I'm not doing? Now, again, if we're coming up from a place of I'm not being judgmental about myself, I'm not saying, wow, I really suck. You know, this is just a tip. You know, no, I'm being very analytical. Yeah. Okay. This person has this, this, and this, and this, and this. And if I want to be where they are, there's a path. So that's how I use the comparison. We use it as a way to succeed, not as a way to put ourselves down or, you know, because I've moved around a lot, just the, the places that I've told you, you know, especially when I moved into New York City, oh, do you know how many therapists there are? You know, oh, do you know how many people need help? <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about mental toughness. All of these skills that we're talking about are the ingredients of mental toughness. And another way of talking about toughness is resiliency. Why are some people more able to get up after a tragedy or something and other people are not? Mm -hmm. That was always, again, my question. And it, I'm very resilient. Why am I so resilient? What do I do differently than the next person? You know, what ingredients have I sort of inherited in a way? And again, these are things that can be taught and taught to children at very young ages. So I have a list of resilient language. How do we talk to ourselves? How do we look at a situation? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have had some real tragedy in my life. I lost my parents in a car accident. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. When I was 42 years old. And I said to myself, number one, and I was very close to my mother, how do I continue? I'm not the first person that lost my parent in a car accident. Right. How do other people get through this? So I started to study, and that's what I do. I, you know, I went to books and I went to, you know, mentors and how do I think about this? So the way that we think about things, and this is where the spiritual stuff comes in. Wayne Dyer wrote a book. It's called, There's a Spiritual Solution to Every Problem. I don't remember anything else that the book says, <laughs> but there's a spiritual solution to every problem, which means that it's bigger than me. 
somehow or other, how do I get into that big mind? You know, people die. Mothers die. You know, she died when I was 42. How grateful am I that she didn't die when I was younger? And so I started to got all kinds of things, you know, about past what, you know, afterlife and this and things that could help me to make sense of my experience that I had just talked to her the day before. And then she's not here. Where is she? Where did she go? Mm -hmm. So in that way, I begin to start to open up a bigger place. And that's helped me just more than anything. And the other thing in terms of being resilient, I knew as bad as it was, and it was really bad, I was okay. Mm -hmm. Somehow or other, there was this kernel that I knew I would get through it. I will figure it out. I've had breast cancer. There's another one. I had metastatic breast cancer. Okay. What do people do that have had this and have healed? What is this healing response? How do you get into the healing response? And I go down that, you know, kind of path. So it's this constant curiosity of how do successful people succeed? Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about limiting beliefs. So limiting beliefs are stories. And I really want to emphasize this, that so much of what we carry around are stories of things that we have been told from our parents, from our culture, from media. People will say to me all the time, it's just who I am. No, it's not really just who you are. It's just maybe who you've become by holding on to these beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so they can be changed, but they're not easy. They're the last thing in my experience when I've worked with somebody for a long time or groups of people, they're the last things that kind of give up because they require the willingness to be very open to maybe, maybe I'm not right. Maybe there's something else here that's going on. So I have an exercise in my program that we start to name all the beliefs and beliefs you will know because they're your shoulds. Mm. I should do this. I should do that. I should do this. I should. And so one of the ones I use all the time, it's kind of a silly one, but Heinz ketchup is the best ketchup. I should buy. Why? Because my mother bought it. She said it was the best. <laughs> and so I continue to, do I know if it's the best? I don't know. Right. So it's very important if you choose to really kind of go on this transformational self-awareness journey, because we can't change anybody else ever. We can only change ourselves. And what could be more interesting than looking at yourself, honestly, with great curiosity. So we talk about all the beliefs. I ask people to keep a journal, you know, every time one pops into your head. And then we start to really examine them. Whose belief is this? Mm -hmm. Where did it come from? And then do I want to carry it on? They're not all bad. I mean, there are core values. And I pay a lot of attention to this unconscious bias. You know, where I was raised, how I was raised. And I stop myself every time I know, oh, that's a bias. And then I'll tweak it. That's just a story. That's just something I've learned. So staying at that level of awareness and consciousness helps us become more open 
and more living really in our own truth. And this is where we come back to. I don't compare my truth to anybody else's. This is what works for me. Mm-hmm. And these are the values that I hold on to and that I abide by. And many of them are non-negotiable. <laughs> when you think about the most successful leaders you know, Mm-hmm. What is a shared core value in their mindset? I think it's that they take care of their people more than anything. I mean, look at COVID. Mm-hmm. I was part of an organization and I really treasure this person, the way he handled all of us. Uh, we used to meet monthly, we started meeting weekly. And he really, really helped us in, okay, how are we going to pivot? And we're all entrepreneurs. We're all in business. Scary time mm-hmm. for everybody. And he kind of carried this organization through for a good two to three years. Let's talk about managing distractions. Okay. What is the best way for leaders to manage distractions? I think the first thing is to recognize when you're distracted. Uh, Again, there's another statistic that if we start to go down that road on social media, whether you think it's going to check one thing, I think it averages out to about 25 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. Right? (laughs) So funny. So being very mindful, number one, of when you're really in focus, what are the times of day? that you do best. When you wake up in the morning is the first thing that you pick up your phone. Another thing is some people are night people. So it's really important for you to know who you are. And again, when you think best. So I'm really good in the morning and the things that require my concentration, you know, sometimes the things that are the hardest things for me to do, I do in the morning. Mm-hmm. Because come afternoon, my brain is done. I want to go see my grandbaby. <laughs> you know? Aww, so I don't want to be sitting in front of the computer. Or like yesterday, I had a really busy morning and I had a lot of things that I put out a lot of energy. And then like around three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm having a conversation with somebody. And I, I cut it short because I had something really important at four o'clock. I said, I need to cut this short because I'm just really low on energy. Wow. I think I lay down for a couple of minutes or I might go for a walk or I might do something that's completely different. So when we're in laser focus, there are certain neurochemicals that are being generated, that dopamine that really help us to focus. About 90 minutes, it kind of wanes and it's time to get up. And then go into a broad focus, like taking a walk. You know, I live near the water, so I I just love the open sky and Mm -hmm. kind of getting out there or gardening or taking a shower or something where your mind is now in what we call broad focus. And this is the time when your brain does its work. It helps you kind of, oh, yeah, I could do that. It connects the dots Mm -hmm. for us. So if we don't leave time for that kind of thinking, we're now moving towards burnout. Love that. That makes so much sense. 
Tina, oh my God, we could talk for hours. Okay, last question, <laughs> always the same. How do you want to leave your mark? I'm very, very clear about this. I would like to be able to give the things that we're talking about away for free <laughs> to, I'm thinking high school students, you know, 15, 16, 17. If parents can start teaching this at a younger age, it's even better. Mm -hmm. But because of the way that I've kind of designed this and the way I think, we need a little bit of cognition to make some of the tweaks and observations that we're talking about. Man, if I could take this into Oakland, California, you know, the Bronx, all over the country, and give these kids skills, because this is what we're talking about. I didn't make this stuff up. You know, I just put it together in a package that I believe is very user-friendly, very grounded, very down-to-earth. And if I could get these kids to just stop for a second, and I'll show you this. This is what I had for my TEDx talk. This was a little mantra that I taught. Cut, reframe, respond. So here comes the trigger. I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting angry. I'm getting annoyed. I just stop. And it's that notice. I see it. Let me just stop for a second. Okay, now the reframe. What's going on? What's running through my mind and my body? Oh, I noticed that this guy just, you know, looked at me funny or my sneakers got dirty or whatever it is. Okay, I noticed that. Okay, now how do I want to respond? I get to choose. See, being in control of your life, people think that it means controlling other people. It really means controlling yourself and being at choice. I get to choose how I respond. Yeah. If I could teach this over and over and over and have people do this, whether you're the CEO, the president of the country, whoever you are, we're human beings and we get stressed and we get pulled and we get agitated. How do we manage this nervous system? So the other part of this, Elisa, is that if you imagine that this is your nervous system's capacity for stress, as soon as my nervous system hits its capacity, I go into the stress response. And most importantly for leaders, for anybody, the first thing that goes is your mind. <laughs> you can't think clearly. Yeah. You can't make good decisions. You can't respond to people with empathy and attention and authenticity and so, you know, I may be single-minded, but I do believe that this is the key to world peace. <laughs> that would be a great thing. Um, Tina, this is so interesting. And I think every single person really can benefit, certainly from your book, if not your courses. Thank you so much for coming on Leave Your Mark. Oh, thank you. And thank you for your great questions, because Aww. it was just a great conversation. Thank you. And shout out to Randy Joy Epstein for introducing us. That's right. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Leave Your Mark. If you want more career advice or tips on personal branding, make sure to pick up a copy of my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception. Want to land your dream job or kill it in your career? Don't forget about my first book, Leave Your Mark. If you want me to speak at your company or at an offsite, or if you need consulting services, please go to alizalick.com. I would love to connect with you there and on social media. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.